Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. On the 15th of February, 1894, a French anarchist named Marshal Bourdin was killed in an explosion when a bomb that he was carrying unexpectedly detonated in London's Greenwich Park. Just what his plans had been with that bomb is unclear, but most assume that he'd intended to blow up the Royal Observatory, the site of the Prime Meridian, in the name of anarchist revolution. That accidental explosion marked the first act of international terrorism within the borders of the UK, and it sparked a media frenzy, raising questions about links between Britain's communities of refugees and migrants and the threat of revolutionary violence. That event became known as the Greenwich Outrage. Now, to mark its 130th anniversary, comes On Direct Action, a two-day series of events and workshops to be held on the 14th and 15th of February at various locations around London. The events explore both the culture and topography of late 19th century anarchism and the resonances of that history in the present day, when the politics of migration and asylum have become so exceptionally volatile, and when groups like Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil have put practices of direct action back under the political spotlight. To tell us more about these events and the history they commemorate, I'm joined by Megan McInerney and Thomas Jones. Megan McInerney is one of the organizers of the two-day event, and she researches the commingled world of anarchist thought and modernist literature as part of her PhD thesis in English literature at the University of Surrey. Thomas Jones is Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Buckingham, and he's published widely on exiles in 19th century Britain. He's currently writing a book on the history of asylum for Harvard University Press. I began our conversation by inviting Megan and Thomas to describe the event at the heart of this history, the 1894 Greenwich Outrage. So the Greenwich Outrage, it refers to an event that happened on the afternoon of the 15th of February, 1894. So a French anarchist who was called Mathiel Baudin made his way from his home in Soho to the Greenwich Park with a brick-sized brown parcel in his hand, and he made his way up the pathway to the observatory, but the parcel exploded on his way up. And it didn't kill him instantly, but he was rushed to the hospital and died a little while afterwards. And so th this event spurred a lot of questions. Um, people didn't know what his motivations were. And because of that, there was a lot of press coverage afterwards. Yeah, there's a lot of press coverage because of the obscurity of, of his motives, because of the kind of bizarre place in which this explosion took place, you know, in a, in a park near the Greenwich Observatory. But um, Bourdin was the only person, he was the only person injured and, uh, you know, there was no property damaged as well. So the kind of bizarre nature of the, of the incident, I think, caused a lot of interest in it. But also, this was the closest thing to an anarchist outrage that 
that Britain had in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the, the kind of classic period of propaganda by the deed in which, you know, there were a number of famous assassinations of emperors and presidents and members of royal families you know, across Europe and, and in the United States. And it raised questions about Britain's relatively liberal approach to anarchism and to questions of political asylum. Um, Bourdin being a French exile mm -hmm. did open up a debate about whether Britain should continue as it had done for well over half a century at this point to allow political exiles of all types a kind of free asylum in Britain. And so there's a there's an international aspect to this and uh, a kind of tension between between Britain and its neighbors who are very interested in kind of getting at the anarchist exile community in Britain and, and trying to get Britain to kind of fall in line and taking a harsher uh, line against international anarchism. So there's a lot of short-term uh, kind of interest in it. I think in the long term, it's of course best remembered through the Joseph Conrad novel, um, The Secret Agent, which was published in 1907 and is loosely based on the events of February 1894. I mean, from everything that you're saying, it sounds like there is obvious current day resonance in mm. the event, in the questions that it raised, in the kind of public debate that it spurred. So in a sense, I'm I'm it's you're already anticipating the question that I'm about to ask, which is about, you know, why commemorate this now and what sorts of questions does it present, you know, that are worth make it worth revisiting today. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, so obviously, we've had many, it's it's very much in the zeitgeist, this idea of terrorism, this idea of protest and direct action, um, both violent and nonviolent. Um, you know, there's the Police Crimes and Sentencing and Courts Act, which was passed in 2022, um, which enabled the police to impose new conditions on protests, the maximum prison sentence has increased for activists. And in general, the police are being given more powers you know, and there's also the prevent framework. Uh, they have they have an acronym, uh, which is left wing anarchist and single issue terrorism, which I think is is so indicative because it shows the way in which this kind of nascent form of of terrorist activism in the in the 1890s and the 19th century has really shifted and and changed over the course of the 20th century to the point where now we consider this sort of terrorism to be connected to maybe single issue and environmental terrorism and activism. So that that is the context that we're living in. And I think it really does speak to the context that the, the Greenwich outrage kind of initiated, which you know as well led to the Aliens Act of 1905, which was the first significant piece of um, immigration policy that we had in this country, which now you know has resonances for today. Yeah, I mean those those resonances are incredibly stark I, th I think remembering this event and 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 this period and and the the milieu in which Bourdin was able to operate and the kind of the debates that the Greenwich out outrage produced about the, the desirability of providing political asylum you know is almost spookily relevant now I mean this is a an issue on which Britain, today has uh, an attitude, a prevailing attitude and prevailing set of policies that are almost 
diametrically opposed to that of late Victorian Britain. Britain now has an incredibly restrictionist approach to asylum, denying almost any possibility of legally claiming asylum, trying to offshore Britain's own responsibilities in the arena of asylum. And I think it, you know, remembering that the, the Victorian period's very different approach to this is, a, I think, a salient reminder of, of how contingent the current approach is and how, how much, you know, kind of attitudes can and, and, and do shift over time. Um, so for those interested in questions of, of asylum and, and, and supporting political refugees, knowing that there has been a very different way that these things have been done in this country's history, perhaps is a, a sort of hopeful reminder. Yeah. Megan, does that lead into your research? Because I was really struck in what I read online about the the kind of context of overlap and interpenetration between literary and political circles around anarchist thought and the kind of sort of elasticity of support it sounded like. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I'm really interested in drawing from what Thomas was saying, the kind of transnational uh, literary network. So, in, you know, in the late 19th century, you had the kind of rise in this kind of cosmopolitan identity, which I think is directly connected to the anarchist framework in terms of the way that anarchists think about space and, and the way they, they conceive of um, alternative political systems, but also just what the anarchists were doing, which was moving between countries quite freely. So, I mean, my interest specifically in my research is I focus on the intersection between anarchism and aestheticism, so the aesthetic movement in the late 19th century, the philosophy of art for art's sake, which emerged emerged mostly from the, the thought in, in, in the British context from the thought of Walter Pater, who believed that we should live, you know, every moment as it passes, he says in the conclusion to the Renaissance. But I strongly feel that this idea connects with anarchist notions of prefiguration, and as well, the, the Renaissance was published in 1873, and you had just had the Paris Commune in 1871, in which these ideas were kind of put into practice for the first time. Most of the communards didn't really conceive of themselves as anarchists in that period. They kind of became anarchists later on. But it was it was this starting point that really this idea of prefiguration, of, of creating alternative systems in the here and now with what we have, this kind of imminent political philosophy that emerged at the same time as, as the aesthetic movement and this idea of this kind of imminence within art. So that's what I'm I'm really interested in. And then you have these resonances within the late 19th century. You have aesthetic writers or writers associated with the aesthetic movement like Henry James, Grant Allen, who were writing dynamite novels. So Henry James wrote The Princess Casamassima. Grant Allen was, uh, his novel for Mamie's sake, A Tale of Love and Dynamite, it's called. And then you have G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, in which you have, um, I think it's is it Lucy and Gregory? Lucy and Gregory is this, you know, anarchist aesthetic character. So, you know, you really do see these um, continuities come out in the 19th century. And what happened within those networks in the wake of the explosion of this bomb in, in London? Did it have an impact on their the circulation of their ideas? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Greenwich outrage had quite a big impact on the anarchist press afterwards because the, I think, the, the Commonweal closed... Um, subsequently. And yeah, I mean, in, in terms of literary networks, I would say you had Helen and Olivia Rossetti, who were the anarchist nieces of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Christina Rossetti. Their house was searched by the police because Arthur Rossetti, their brother, uh, they, they 
thought that he potentially might have been involved. So I think that's a really interesting connection. You have these anarchists who, who are embracing something else other than this legacy of, of pre-Raphaelitism and this kind of more middle-class um, synthesis of socialism and aestheticism and embracing this kind of international radicalism, which is quite interesting. You also have um, Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, in which the Bourdain incident is actually directly referenced because Lady Bracknell she has a line towards the end of the play when, when they're talking about Bunbury, you know, the fictional character within the context of the story. And it said, oh, you know, Bunbury exploded. And she says, exploded, was he the victim of a revolutionary outrage? And obviously, you know, the importance of being earnest premiered in 1895 and Wilde was writing it in, in the summer of 1894. So, you know, directly after this event. I think the incident, it it had a, uh, an important material effect too on... Mm -hmm anarchist life in, in London. I mean, the, the international anarchist community, and it was a very international and polyglot community, was placed under increased police surveillance, both by the Metropolitan Police and by sort of secret police from, from France and from Germany and, you know, other neighboring European countries. There were police raids, not only on the residences of Bourdin and some of his closest associates, but also very famously the autonomy club, which was for a time one of the main centers of sociability for international anarchists was, was raided by the Metropolitan Police. It had already begun to acquire a reputation for being kind of chock full of police spies anyway. So this kind of unwanted attention helped kind of contribute to the, that club closing down. And although it did reopen a few months later, it was never quite the same again. So there's this kind of disruption to anarchist sociability that that comes with the reaction to the outrage and anarchists themselves are somewhat divided on the nature of what happened if um, Bourdain was kind of provoked into carrying a bomb by a you know someone in the pay of the police or um, you know there's there's some falling out on what it was exactly he wanted to accomplish so it does have a I think a negative immediate material impact on on these anarchist networks. So one of the events that's going to be happening over the two days is a walking tour that um, I think you're going to be leading, Thomas, through Anarchist Soho, is that right? That's right, yeah. So Fitzrovia and Soho. Soho had kind of been the heart of political exile in London for a number of generations. My kind of interest in this subject started with the, the 1848 generation. And, you know, Soho is where Republicans and socialists from, from France and Germany and Hungary and, and Italy kind of congregated after the collapse of the 1848 generations. And after 1871, there are about 3,500 communard exiles who make their way to, to Britain after the destruction of the Paris Commune. And, and they similarly tend to congregate in, in Soho, but increasingly kind of moving north into Fitzrovia. And by the time we get to the 1880s, 1890s, the, the center of gravity for the exile community in London has has shifted north a little bit. But um, yes, I'll be I'll be leading a kind of guided tour through some of the streets of, of Fitzrovia and Soho on the first day of the conference as a as a kind of walk through of the the physical space in, in which Bourdin and, and other exiles lived and worked and drank and circulated their ideas and so it'll it will kind of highlight some key private addresses the location of businesses run by exiles uh, the location of some of the clubs 
some of the printing presses and you know headquarters of, of, of newspapers, both particularly relevant to to Bourdin and and the events of February eighteen ninety four, but also kind of more generally trying to establish you know, a sense of what this wider international anarchist milieu was like. So I'll try to, you know, highlight certain aspects of, of exile, social and economic life, try to give a sense of how this was a community that was simultaneously very cosmopolitan. You know, it was drawn from a number of different countries. It was in in contact with anarchist communities in, in other cities across the world. You know, it's a, it's a very highly internationally interconnected community, but it's also one that's is very, very kind of localized in a particular part of the city of London. And not the city of London with a capital C, but but in 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 London. Some anarchists, you know, of course, live in other parts of London. There's an important Jewish anarchist community that grows up in the East End of London as well. But for many of the anarchist exiles, sort of Fitzroy Street and Charlotte Street were the main areas that they that they lived and and where they spent most of their time. So it could be a very kind of small and face-to-face community, as well as one that's obviously incredibly cosmopolitan and international. So that, that kind of paradox is something I want to try to to make visible to the people who who go on the walk. And I will also highlight kind of connections with previous exile communities. There still are a few communards um, hanging around in London in the 1890s. And some of the addresses that are important to the anarchists were important to the generation of the 1848 revolution, nearly you know, half a century earlier. So I suppose the kind of key point of the, of the walk, or, or my hope, is that it will kind of contextualize Bourdain and his milieu, both kind of physically in its own time, but also in this kind of longer term sweep of the history of political asylum, political refugees in London. Yeah, fascinating. I I guess I wondered, as I was listening to you, and this is sort of a question for you both, about just the arc of anarchist history. Presumably the communities that you're looking at and the connections that that Megan's exploring, that those are dramatically affected by um, the First World War and by political repression and, um, well, and and bloodshed and and upheaval that happens with that. But do you do you feel like that imprint? I mean, well, so that's one question. Is that true? And, And does that community go elsewhere? Does it disperse? And do you feel the impact of it is still living on in in different ways? I mean, I suppose that's that's another way of talking about the resonances of these histories for for now, which is part of what the the events of the two day workshop are meant to explore. Yeah, I mean, it's it is interesting. I think there was a kind of complete decimation of the anarchists by the First World War and definitely post World War One. I think also because of the Bolshevik Revolution and you, the triumph, if we're talking like historically speaking, of, of a kind of a more sort of authoritarian form of socialism um, that kind of became a thing within the 20th century. But the anarchists never really went away. They're, they're always there. there are, I mean, there are still anarchists today. And I think that it just kind of it, it transformed itself over time. For me, I, I think that because direct action has had a quite 
a lot of time to develop and change and shift. You have new forms of political engagement that weren't really a thing, you know, in the late 19th century. You know, today we have street blockades, vandalism, theft, occupation, strikes. <laughs> These are all forms of direct action, but we also have um, hacktivism, for example. Yeah, I, w- I would certainly agree with that. I mean, I think the, the First World War not only, you know, ushers in a fair amount of repressive legislation that allows the state to shut down newspapers, shut down, you know, radical clubs, things like this. It also makes London a much less cosmopolitan place. It directly disrupts this uh, this international community that exists in and around Soho. So, you know, the the First World War sees the decimation, for example, of, of the German population of Europe and you know Germans had been amongst the most numerous in the international anarchist uh, community before the First World War um, but many Germans are deported many others are detained most often uh, on in prison camps on the Isle of Man but you know Alexander Palace in London is converted into a, a prison camp and, and and German civilian men are kept there from 1915 all the way into the end of the war including uh, very famously the German anarchist exile Rudolf Rocker. French and Italian men are encouraged and sometimes forced to go back to their countries of origin, which are fighting the war on the same side as Britain, and and Britain kind of helps Paris and and Brussels and Rome and other uh, allied states try to enforce conscription on the population's living kind of social context in which the anarchist community could thrive in the way that it did before the First World War, disrupted by the First World War. And, you know, the the, the immigration system that is first set up, as Megan said, in, in 1905 in a limited way, is radically strengthened during the First World War. And immigration restriction and the ability of the state to summarily expel foreign nationals just for having kind of obnoxious political opinions is greatly increased as well during the war. And that remains the case after the war is over. So I think all of that means that, um, you know, the, the, the anarchist community is still there in Britain, of course, after the First World War, but it's, it's materially changed quite a bit. And in some ways, I suppose the, the center of gravity in international anarchism kind of moves on from London. To where, do you think? Well, um, just picking up on, on what I said about Rocker, he goes back to Germany and he's very uh, involved in anarchist trade union organization in uh, Weimar, Germany and Berlin. Um, of course, there's a there's a hugely important anarchist strand on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. Some move on from Europe entirely to the United States and there's a, there's a kind of dispersal in, in many different directions. So over the two days, what are the different elements that you're going to be bringing into being to allow people to reflect on and chew on this history? Well, so when we conceived of the idea, we didn't want it to be just a straightforward academic conference, um, because we felt that the topic itself maybe required a bit more sort of tangible engagement in keeping with the, you know, with the idea of direct action. So we have events across two days. The Wednesday is mostly the non-academic events. From 1 to 2 p.m., we have a workshop with Vita Slay, which is called uh, Shapes of Direct Action, which is, a, is an embodiment workshop um, at 
Kairos in London, which is close to Tottenham Court Road. And you can get um, a tickets for this on Eventbrite. All the events are on Eventbrite, just to just to clarify. And then afterwards, we have Thomas's wonderful walking tour around Soho. And then after that, Mayday Rooms, which is a wonderful archive in London on Fleet Street, are also hosting a workshop called Everyone Does It, Direct Action and Everyday Strategies of Survival, which I think is a really wonderful title because it implies that direct action isn't just necessarily bombing or terrorist campaigns. And then in the evening on the Wednesday, very excitingly, we have a panel discussion and a film screening of Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage, which was loosely based on Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent. And then the panel discussion involves Claire Armistead, Anais Weissman, Matthew Beaumont, Matthew Sweet and Tom McCarthy. Um, so that's and that starts at 6pm and you can get tickets on the Royal Observatory website. Uh, on Thursday, this is where the more academic chunk of things come in. We have panels, but then interspersed with the panels, we have practitioners of direct action who are doing various presentations and some workshops as well. So the panels include symbolism and spectacle, networks and history, praxis and passion, and media and mass culture. So we enjoy alliteration. Um, and then, so some of the practitioners that we have are Reading Red Kitchen, Gail Chester and Frances Howe, who are some feminist activists, and Phoebe Plummer, who is known for throwing soup at painting in the National Gallery, which is quite exciting. So, but yeah, we've got quite a lot on offer. Sounds fantastic. Just, just out of curiosity, if someone's listening to this in three weeks' time and the event has already happened, what would be good ways of them encountering these ideas themselves or beginning to explore these ideas? I mean, I think that the best place to start would probably be reading The Secret Agent. I always recommend that to everyone because it's a wonderful novel. And Comrade manages to really capture a lot of the questions that the Greenwich outrage really provoked. Um, and he's only writing, uh, what is it, maybe 13 years in retrospect. He very skillfully manages to satirise everyone. And I think the wonderful thing about The Secret Agent as a novel is if you read it, then your sympathies are kind of what you get out from the novel. So if you if you read the novel with anarchist sympathies and you assume that the novel is kind of pro-anarchism, if you if you read it and you align more with the, the police in the novel, then you assume that it's on the side of the police, um, which I think is because of Conrad's very skillful irony. No one escapes his satire. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Thomas. Well, it occurs to me that some of the people speaking on, on the second day have written very good books about this moment in history and different aspects of the anarchist community in late Victorian London. So Constance Bantman is speaking on Thursday and you know her book on the French anarchists in London is really, really excellent. Daniel Lacqua, who's also speaking, has written about um, the German community in uh, late Victorian London. There's Pietro de Paola's book on the Italians. And a couple mm -hmm. of years ago, John Quayle's classic on British anarchism, The Slow Burning Fuse, which I think was originally published in 1978, was reissued. It's like 2019, 2020 around then was reissued. So easily available again. Oh, Thomas, I was going to ask you about the, so the Soho anarchists. Was that mostly French anarchists who lived in that area or was it? Very, you know, with their German anarchists? Oh, they're, they're, anarchists. Yeah, it's not, it's not only French anarchists who live in around Soho and, and Vitzrovia. There are Germans, there are Italians, there are European anarchists, really of every sort. I think when we're thinking about the 
the kind of topography of, of anarchist London, the main kind of centers are are there in Soho Fitzrovia, which is very cosmopolitan and international center, and then the East End, which is largely Jewish and Russian empire in, in origin. And then, of course, those who can afford to often move out into kind of leafier districts. Mm. There's a there's a kind of important, I think, smaller population that's quite cosmopolitan in, in Islington. If I'm not mistaken, I think Malatesta lived in Islington, for example. Yes, and I, I mean, from my own research, I know that the Rossettis lived in Primrose Hill and they mm. were visited by various people. They lived next door to the Garnets. So Constance Garnet, very infamous um, translator of Russian literature who was friends with the anarchist Stepniak, who was in London at that time period, and also Kropotkin mm. would visit them as well. How much of this is on blue plaques, if you're wandering around London? Will you will you find much of it, or do you really need to recover this sort of from the inside? I wish there were more. The I think Kropotkin's, some of his addresses have been blue plaqued, as it were. But, I mean, in Soho, the most notable blue plaque of kind of any of these 19th century exiles is Marx's on Dean Street. Right. So there's much less, I think, awareness and, and memorialization of the, the community in the 1890s. Yeah, and, and the, specifically the anarchist community as well, which is part of the logic of this event, was just that this history really isn't in the public consciousness. John Quayle's book is called The Forgotten History of British Anarchists, which is for a reason. You know, it's very much a hidden, forgotten history. Many thanks to Megan McInerney and Thomas Jones for taking part in this conversation. You can learn more about them and their work and about the On Direct Action events on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on X at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>